what's it mean to sit in a Thanksgiving chair? You got to see it with life that happened with this young man. As he sits and watches his children at the breakfast table, he sits back and he realizes that's a moment too precious to miss. And he sits in the Thanksgiving chair. As he takes his kids to school and gets to experience that moment with them, he sits in the Thanksgiving chair. As he sits at work and life doesn't go well for him there, it becomes a frustrating, difficult, and hard moment for him to handle. And yet, even in that moment, he realized he needed to sit in the Thanksgiving chair because even though it wasn't perfect, it was still good. And maybe the hard one. When loss creeps into our life, when we have to experience that moment that seems so incredibly final, to us. We have to sit in the Thanksgiving chair. And there's a perspective that is gained from that that is so different. Difficult but powerful all at the same time. There are two women that we're going to look at this morning, one primarily, but the other in a secondary way, one from the New Testament, one from the Old Testament, and both had to sit in the Thanksgiving chair. See, Mary understood what the Thanksgiving chair kind of looked like in her life. Remember that moment when the angel Gabriel came and told the young virgin Mary that she was going to have a child that was going to be the Son of God? And he was going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. And her response in that moment is, how can this be? What am I supposed to do with this? How how do I, I handle this? And so the angel says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And you are going to have this child. And this child is going to save his people from their sins. He is going to be unique and different than any other child. And as a sign for you, your cousin Elizabeth, who is old and barren, is also going to have a child. And so Mary goes and she sees Elizabeth and the baby leaps inside Elizabeth. And she says to her, blessed are you among all women. And Mary has that moment where she sits in the Thanksgiving chair. And she says these words, Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for, <clears throat> for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble 
He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And so if you read Luke's account, and particularly in those first two chapters, you understand just how significant both Mary and Elizabeth are in this, in the birth of John the Baptist, Elizabeth's son, and in the coming of Jesus, and all of the things that are associated with that. Both of these women, chosen, but not as the world would choose, lowly, humble, insignificant in the way that the world looks at significant. And yet, as God reminded Samuel when he chose David as king, God does not look on the outside, but God looks on the heart of an individual. And as God looks on the heart, he finds things that others cannot see, that are not evident, and yet he does something with these folks. And so they are overwhelmed. Mary is overwhelmed by the grace of her magnificent God. There is another story in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Do you remember the story of Hannah and his mother, or Samuel and his mother Hannah? Hannah has no children, and her husband's other wife has children. And so she abuses her. She makes fun of her. And in that moment, Hannah goes before God absolutely broken and going, God, I I, I can't take this. Her husband would try to provide her with more food because he loved her so dearly. Wanted to show her that, look, it's all right. I still love you. But she couldn't get over the fact that she was barren. And she makes a promise to God. And she says, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to temple service. He will be yours. He's going to be the one that you are going to use and he's going to be the one that you are going to take care of and you're going to have. And so Hannah sings a song of praise as well, similar to Mary's song. 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 3, look at these words. My heart rejoices in the Lord and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My soul boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. I will say to you, the words are not parallel, not completely. And you don't have Luke quoting what Hannah said in 1 Samuel 2, but you have Mary who obviously is steeped in Scripture. And as she praises a God who has regarded her in her lowly estate, she at least has some of the same sound that Hannah had. A woman who also was regarded in her lowly estate, and yet God reached out to her and blessed her. So what is Mary thankful for? What are the things she looks at that she is grateful for? What are the things in this passage that stand out? Here's the first one, and I think it's pretty simply stated that God helps the lowly. 
What fills Mary's heart is that God loves to reach out to the underdog who calls on him for his mercy. Look at what she says, verse 50. He has mercy on those who fear him. Verse 52, he's exalted those of low degree. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And so you have that side of God's holiness that he is concerned about the folks in the world that typically the world is not concerned about. That are the least of these, that are not considered the powerful. In fact, the other side of God's holiness, she addresses in other sections of this same passage. For she says in verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. Verse 52, he has put down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away. Empty. It is so interesting that if we are not careful, we will take the resources and the blessings that God gives us and we will substitute them for Him. One of the reasons that God puts down the proud, the haughty, the rich is because they begin to trust in the things that God has provided them as opposed to trusting in the God who provided them. And so here is a situation where Mary sits there and says, look at how God loves me. Look at how God is gracious and kind to me. Here's the second thing you see out of this passage of Scripture. You find God blessing Mary. She starts to just give thanks Kind of like we've done. She starts to recount the ways in which God has worked and the ways in which God has taken her life, how he has considered her and how he has blessed her. We ask you and have been asking you during this entire season of time to take a moment and thank God for all that God has done. Why is that important? The truth of the matter is this. We sometimes can get so caught up in life, not only in its complications, but also in its busyness, in the frenetic nature of it. And we will forget, much like our man in the video clip had forgotten, as he watched his children eat breakfast in the joy of that moment, The small and what some would say are insignificant, but those of us that look back over life realize just how precious and just how significant those moments really are, right? That God used all of that and part of our responsibility and part of what we are called to do is to not get so caught up in what we call doing life. Remember what Michael Harbour said to us last week. Part of what we need to start to practice is just not recounting thanksgiving, but also think about ways that we do thanksgiving. That we are fully present in moments where we actually sit there and see the great blessings that God gives us. And we take that step back and we find ourselves back in the thanksgiving chair. Some of you guys have got small children. 
take the moments. Remember the moments. Don't rush through those moments. Allow God to use those moments in special ways. See, Mary just sat there and was overwhelmed at just how good God was. And just how much He had blessed her. And here's the third one. Mary's heart couldn't help but magnify the Lord. Her spiritual beauty reaches its emotional peak in the first part of her song when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, we know how a mouth magnifies God. We talk about God in His magnificent nature. God who is worthy of all of our praise. We say, we sing, we proclaim those things with our mouth. But how does a soul magnify God? See, there was something. Haven't you had those moments in your life when your soul just exploded with joy? Joy over what God was doing. Joy over how God was moving. Joy over the fact that He regarded you and saw you through a difficult and hard moment. Joy that just goes beyond words. It is a condition of your heart. And that's what Mary does in this. It is this moment where she just can't believe that God could love her like this. That he could be involved with her like this. That he considered her like this. A heart that is just overwhelmed with joy. It's kind of like the psalmist in Psalm 69 verse 30. He says, I will praise God's name in song and I will glorify him with thanksgiving. So I want to switch gears a second. Because Mary is in this place in life where it is good and it is positive and it is wonderful. And it's everything that it needs to be. I want you to fast forward with me a little bit. Matthew chapter 19 verse 29. It's Jesus speaking. And he's going to say something that's going to be very prophetic. In a lot of ways. He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I get the point of having to leave stuff to follow after Christ, right? I understand that. That actually makes sense to me. But I have a harder time when sometimes we are called to leave people and sometimes we are called to deal with people who lead us. So I want to put another scene up on the screen for you. This is a picture of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. It is a depiction of Mary looking at Jesus on the cross. 
And Jesus looks back at her. And he says in John 19, verse 26 out of the RSV. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. I want those of you who are parents particularly to take that journey with me. That's your child on the cross. That's that one you love more than you know how to even put into words. And I want you to ask yourself, how do you come back to this chair in that moment? How do you sit here and think about all of the things that you have been through with him? See, you go back to that moment where Gabriel comes and he says, you're going to have the Son of God. And your heart is so full with joy and thanksgiving, you can't even, it just explodes out of you. You remember what it was like to ride on the back of that donkey and to take that long trip into Bethlehem. And you know that moment. You understand that moment. You, you, you just can kind of sense how difficult that was. And then all of the things that happened with it, with angels singing and shepherds showing up and kings coming, all of these things, you taking a baby and laying him in the hay and taking care of him right there. You think about that moment when he was 12 years old and you've gone back to Jerusalem and now you're headed back home and you start looking for Jesus and he's not there. And so you and Joseph are panicked. You know that feeling when when your child's supposed to be somewhere and now they're no longer there and you can't find them and you don't know where they are and they're not anywhere where they're supposed to be. And all at once you do whatever it takes to go find your child. And they do the same thing and they find him. And he's in the temple. And he's having discussions with scribes, Pharisees, and teachers of the law. And they look at him and say, where have you been? And he says, I've been about my father's business. And you take every bit of that and you put it in your heart because you know what's coming. You know what's coming. You remember the dinner conversations you had. The things you laughed about and talked about. All of the stuff that has gone on through life. You remember every bit of it. And then you remember that day. He comes in from the carpentry shop. He has his nail apron on. And he says. John's preaching in the desert. And he takes that apron off. And he dusts his hands off. And he says goodbye. And from that moment on, it's going to be different. You're going to see him from the edge of the crowd. You're going you're gonna to hear his words 
from the back of the room. You are not going to have those encounters like you once did. That intimate conversation is now over. And now he goes about the mission that he has been given. And he does it with reckless abandon. And you listen to the hate language build about him. This one that you love more than anything else in all the world. And you listen to people wanting to plot and kill and do whatever it takes to take him out of this circumstance and situation. Maybe you were in the back of that, back of the seaside crowd when you heard that statement. Anyone who has left mother Father, for my sake. And you feel it. You feel it like you've never felt anything else. See, Mary's not the first one to have to learn how to say goodbye. Joseph was an orphan in Egypt. Jonah was called to be a foreigner in Nineveh. Hannah, as we've talked about, sent her son to serve in the temple. Daniel was sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nehemiah from Susa to Jerusalem. Abraham was sent to sacrifice his own son. And Paul himself had to say goodbye to his heritage. So the Bible is bound together with goodbye trails and stained with farewell tears. Goodbye is a word that is common in the Christian vocabulary. And you look at that and you go, how does a God who loves us like he says he loves us, why is it we have to say goodbye? Why do we have to say goodbye to people we have loved? And folks, we've had to do that in this church this week. Say goodbye to folks we care about, that we love, that we were not ready to turn loose of. That we weren't ready to let go of. I thought about that a lot. And here's my answer. It's a God who knows that the deepest love is built not on passion or romance but on common mission and sacrifice. It is a God that knows that we are only pilgrims and that eternity is so close that goodbye is really just, I'll see you tomorrow. And here's the big one. It's a God who did it himself. One who did it himself. One who found himself sitting in the Thanksgiving chair. Because in that moment of agony, there is this incredible Thanksgiving because he knows what he knows. That the sacrifice of his son will save the people from their sins.
So here we are at Thanksgiving. You heard it. I, I, I couldn't ask Alan and June to say any more than they said this morning. Oh, my. You heard the joy and the sorrow of all of that tied in together in such a way. And I want to tell you, that is the part of this holiday that is always so difficult for us. It is that sacrifice of praise. Because you know what? We are great with the celebration of it, right? We're grateful for for writing the stuff and putting it on a leaf and sticking it on the tree and all of that. What we're not so great with is those honest moments where we sit there and we have to understand that sometimes to sit in this chair causes a sacrifice that sometimes we don't want to give. I've kind of experienced that this year. My dad died in June. I will tell you, our relationship was at best complicated. Not easy. Difficult. We were not close. We went through all of that. But we were trying to find our way back together. And I had plans when I was in Nashville in July to have a conversation with him where we kind of put that thing back together and he's gone. And I found myself going through his stuff. And I found his wallet. And I went through it because there were things there that I needed. Documentation, all the things. Because when you have to disperse things and deal with things, all of that's a real deal, right? So I emptied all of that out of the wallet. And I looked at the wallet. And then I pulled my own wallet out. And I emptied my own wallet And I put my stuff in his wallet. Because I don't know what to do with that. But I felt this need. This need. To just feel him. And this is as close as it gets. And here we are at Thanksgiving. And I'm going to be with my family. And I tell you, it's a joyous thing. I enjoy that moment. But there's this part too. It's not as easy. And here's what I know about churches. I'm not the only one who struggles with that moment right now. I don't. You struggle with it too. Some more than others. Some in ways that are more profound than I could even begin to imagine. But you sit in this chair. And you give the sacrifice of praise. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do this week. As you look at that picture on the screen of one who gave that ultimate sacrifice, her son. And remember, she was told from the very beginning, it's going to pierce your heart.
Sometimes sitting in the, sacrifice, in the thanksgiving chair will pierce your heart. But there are perspectives you gain from that. I will tell you, I look at this moment not as a sad moment, but a moment of great reflection and a moment of thanksgiving for what my dad brought into my life, as complicated as all of that is. And as we think of people that are not with us in circumstances that we wish were different in this season and this time of year, wouldn't it be wise that we just take the step back, sit in the chair, and let God kind of sort that out for us? Amen? So this morning... If you need to take that step and sit in this chair, but you've never taken that step of faith, that's what I encourage you to do. It starts with a confession that this Jesus who says he's Lord really is, and he's going to be Lord in your life. It means that you're willing to turn loose of things and turn to him to include being baptized into him. But I hope as elders gather around this room, you'll take this moment to walk up to them, these elder couples that are here, to pray with them, to ask God to turn loose of some of the stuff that maybe you've held on to that you need to sit in the chair and just remember, you know what, God, even in the hard things, you're still good. I, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Come as we stand and sing.